Right, I, f I found some. Cool. Right, I'll put these in. Hang on. Okay, I have my headphones on. Oh, no, no, that sounds perfect. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's you're very much in my head. <laughs> that's good. That's exactly where I, I like to be, Keith. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, my name is Daquan Zanine. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in some way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is the games editor of The Guardian, Keith Stewart. And, you know... This is, there's various ways I, I've pitched the show to people, you know, it's kind of like Des Island Discs, but with games, or it's kind of like This Is Your Life, but with games. Um, but this one with, with Keith, it was so lovely talking to him. He's a really, really good talker. But one of the, this is one of the few shows, I think, where there's been a, a very definite theme um, to somebody's life in games. And with Keith, it, it's certainly, it's family, you know, this is a, a theme that keeps coming up again and again, the, the way that we can all share games as a family. And I think it's quite rare because, you know, games are, are still quite young. So uh, it was just, it was lovely to hear. It's very sort of heartwarming episodes, some really lovely stories. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Oh, and acting too. Keith had a, a surprising past as a, an actor when he was in, in university. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. There actually, there may be a, a special episode in the works around that sort of theme. So So do look out for it. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, there's also a Facebook page, which is forward slash checkpointspodcast, or a Twitter page, which is forward slash or at rather checkpointsshow, because it's very important to have consistent branding. Um, I'll be honest, both of those, like the Facebook page is basically just links, and the Twitter page is also basically just links with the occasional retweet of praise, which is uh, always very very much appreciated like please do share the show around in fact i think the facebook page i'm I'm like six people short of a hundred likes um so so like it you know um you you'll get nothing from it really other than a, a sense of of satisfaction that you've made me feel better and and like genuinely importantly it makes uh it makes the show look better for guests that i'm asking to come on the show you know um, because I know there's a lot more people listen to the show than than do the social media stuff, which is which is fine. You know, I'm not I'm not totally chasing numbers, but of course I'm chasing the numbers. I play video games. I've been chasing numbers my entire life. Um, but for you people listening now, you're the best. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you continue to enjoy it. I'll be back in uh, two weeks with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Um, how's it going? How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's been it's been really ridiculous. The last sort of three or four months has been so busy. Um, it's been really busy on the paper, but it's also been busy because I've been doing this book. So yeah, tell me about uh, the book. Like, what 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 is your book? Oh yeah, okay. Well, it's a it's a novel. Um, it's called uh, A Boy Made of Blocks, um, and I guess it started. Um, 
I did. I wrote a feature. I don't know if you saw it last year about uh, my son. He's on the autism spectrum. Um, I saw you. Did you? You talked about that on the Charlie Brooker show, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, where I remember hearing about it. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, when he, I mean, he was kind of. I guess it was about he was about two or three when we started to realise that he was kind of behind on speech and had some kind of behavioural differences to other children of his age, but. When he was about four, I started um, playing video games with him because I thought it was it would be kind of a good way for him to relax. And he was really, really interested in watching me play games. And I just thought, you know, this is something that he can, um, I don't know, experiment with interactivity yeah. on. Um, so one of the first games, obviously, I tried him on. Actually, I tried him on two before this. I tried him on Burnout Paradise, which he absolutely loved because uh, he just loved whizzing around an empty city, crashing into things. Um, but we, we played very early on. We played Minecraft, and he just instantly clicked with it. It was just something about that world. And, and he's by no means alone, apparently, with children who are on the autistic uh, scale. Um there was just something about the world that he connected with and that really spoke to him. And I think probably a lot of it is this idea of creativity within a controlled and confined environment that, you know, he he could express himself with a clearly divisible set of rules and yeah. in a very understandable. So he got really, really into it. And, I, you know, for us, for as, as parents who kind of struggled with kind of integrating with other kids and we were really worried about him, obviously, and to find something that he could do and he could do really, really well and understand was just kind of, you know, I can't express to you how what uh, how kind of uh, magical it was, you know, to use a trite word, but it was magical to see him play this game with his younger brother and really understand it. So I was really taken by Minecraft. And, and yeah, that's when I was on the Charlie Brooker documentary and when I spoke about Minecraft. I think it was obvious when you see that clip that I, I, I became quite emotional about it. Oh, absolutely, that, yeah. It's yeah. a profound impact, clearly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't kind of expecting that to happen. Um, but I think it was the first time that I'd really interrogated how I felt about the game in that way um, and how important it was to us, not only to my son, but, you know, to us as a family as well. Um, and I later on, I think probably about a year after that, maybe maybe slightly less, um, I saw that news, uh, that magazine article about uh, Notch, um, Marcus Pearson, obviously the creator of Minecraft, um, and how he was now a billionaire and he was kind of living alone in this mansion in LA and chucking his money away. And it was really kind of, there seemed to be an almost, um, there must be a kind of shadow around this article and that, how, look what's happened to this guy now. He's a lonely billionaire and he's got no friends. And I, and I, it, I kind of made me feel really sad about the way we were, the way he was being portrayed. And so I wrote this article about, and I, you know, it took me about, it was one of those articles that it just came out. I wrote it in one draft and put it online. And it was just about how important I felt that what he'd done was that he'd, he'd made this game which connected with so many people worldwide. Um, and he wasn't some kind of misfit. He was someone that produced a, a profoundly important tool for a new generation of people to express themselves. And I wrote this feature and uh, uh, Ed Wood, who's a senior editor at Sphere Books, um, read it and contacted me, emailed me and said, you know, have you ever thought about kind of turning this idea of a father and a son connecting over a video game? Have you ever thought about turning that into a novel? And um, I, I really hadn't. I, I've never written fiction um, and I found that idea kind of almost sort of preposterous, uh, the idea that I could do it. Um, but uh, I met him, we had a really nice lunch and he was very enthusiastic. And um, he said, look, just, just write a synopsis, um, write a couple of chapters if you can and get them back to me and we'll see, you know, if you can't do it, that's fine. Um, so 
I was on a flight over to LA actually. I think it was to the, go to see the uh, Call of Duty World Championships, and I just I just started writing it on the flight, and I wrote for like five hours. Uh, wrote a synopsis, wrote the first three chapters, got it back to him, and he said, "Yeah, we like it. We really like it. Let's go for it." And um, I had a book deal. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? I know even now, like I can't believe you know I can't really believe it's happened, and and that was. Um, that was, I think that was probably April last year. And so I wrote, I started writing it in April and I'd finished the first draft by December. And, you know, it was just ridiculous amounts of work because I was working full time at The Guardian as well. And, you know, in the evenings I was writing this book and, you know, writing fiction is really different. It takes a different part of your brain almost, a different, you know, a different approach. And so I just, I've just spent the last year exhausted. That's, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the short answer. To <laughs> but it's all, I mean, it's all finished now. Yeah. It's all done and it's going to be out at some point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in theory it's finished. So I, yeah. So you, you kind of produce a final draft or a first draft, which goes off to the publisher and then they come back and say, here's the million mistakes you made. And then uh, a copy, you get a proof editor who goes through and checks the timeline and, and that's just been done. And that came back and I'd made lots of timeline mistakes, but yeah, I've corrected all of those. So that next time it comes back, it will maybe just to change a word or two, but yeah, the hardback is out in September, I think on uh, sphere books, which is a little, uh, little brown in print so so yeah it's quite exciting so uh, i'm i'm fascinated by this purely uh, from a, a story perspective because i uh, like i write a lot of um tv and, and theater sort of like stage stuff so i'm very interested in in story and mm. like the, the the article i'm sure was was terrific and you know you're, you're very clearly a very good writer but from a from a story standpoint that that strikes me as as quite a difficult one like unless it was you wrote it like purely autobiographically Mm-hmm. um like that that it just seems like quite quite a difficult thing to to turn into a a, a narrative like did you find that yeah i it, in the i mean we had the hook i mean basically what we took was the hook and the hook was a a guy and his son connecting in a video game and his son is autistic and we had those kind of bare skeletal elements yeah yeah i mean i had to i mean it took me the longest time really uh, like a week or so uh, two weeks or so to um to really just think okay how can we expand this and make it something universal that isn't just you know an autobiography of me uh, which is what you know ne- neither me nor the editor wanted so so yeah i mean really i had to come at it thinking okay this is a story about completely different people from me but we have these skeletal elements these kind of cornerstones these kind of tent poles of the story and i have to construct something else around that so yeah it was um it, it was really difficult and what i found was that the way that i write very often when i'm writing about something which i have experience of i write in a very kind of subjective emotional way i do a lot of my writing in, an, in a kind of a, an enhanced emotional state yeah. Um, so you know, I'm sure you're the, you're, you're the same, and lots of writers will, will know what that's like. So to to do that over a thousand five hundred words is quite easy, but to do it over a hundred thousand words is an incredibly different prospect. And I guess what I found myself doing was when I'd come up with a vague synopsis, was was treating every chapter almost like a, a feature. I really had to think of it in that in those structural terms to sort of to kind of wheedle it out of myself. So I, I kind of saw it almost as though I was re- writing a series of um, uh, uh, of almost fictitious essays about these two characters. And that's fascinating. Yeah, that, yeah, that's how I conned myself into doing it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's also, I find it really interesting because it's, 
like usually any kind of um fiction based around video games or with a video game element is generally going to be some kind of science fiction conceit or at best kind of a young adult sort of thing so they, they, I, I can't think of any other examples of uh, essentially like a family drama kind of based around video games which i think is is wonderful like yeah, I don't. I don't. I honestly don't think there have been, and I, I'm quite ready uh, to be proved wrong. But yeah, you're you're right. I mean, there have been some wonderful examples of video games used in science fiction books, and obviously we've got Ready, Ready Player One at the moment. Which yeah, exactly. Is a, you know, great example. But yeah, I, I think partly it's a generational thing. You know, we're, we're still living in a time where video games are treated with a certain amount of suspicion in in the family home, and you know, very much lots of parents their relationships with video games is. is one of management it's one of okay how how much can i let my child play this game and what game should i be worried about rather than thinking this piece of media has a functional role in our cultural lives as a family you know lo- lots of parents will quite happily sit down and watch a pixar dvd with their kids or you know a studio ghibli dvd with their kids and they'll and they'll see that as an enriching thing that they can share together but you know, there's still that kind of slight generational gap with video games that people aren't doing that. And I, and I, and I think, though, that we are at the stage where that's happening. And, you know, lots of lots of people have, have picked up, all, you know, the, for example, the Lego games that are playing those with their kids. And they're realizing that these games are really kind of fun and interesting and have uh, things that they can tell them about their children. Um, so I think this is kind of happening at the right time. I, I almost can't imagine this book having happened, you know, even like three or four years ago, because I just don't think... You, the, this kind of zeitgeist to use that horrible word was really was really there and and ready to accept video games as something which have something which have things to offer to the family so yeah totally yeah and and that kind of the i mean the, the, that's kind of what the i was hoping to do or what i continually hope to do with this show is that it's it's video games not as um as cultural milestones as moments like in, in a life and how they can shape various different parts of your life um, so Keith, we haven't even done an introduction, so let's do an introduction. Yeah. I can kind of <laughs> okay. like cut in quite nicely. So uh, Keith, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. So I'm Keith Stewart. I am the video games editor for The Guardian. So most of my writing for The Guardian appears online. Uh, we write game stuff every day online and, uh, and put it onto the uh, technology and culture sections of the, of the newspaper's website. We kind of straddle both those areas awkwardly but nevertheless uh, <laughs> professionally oops was that mike was that a text message going off oh dear i didn't uh, catch it so you oh you, that's you right scuppered yourself there Keith. oh no damn it <laughs> <laughs> sorry should i should i start that again no 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 it's fine it's fine it's very casual yeah so um so yeah so that i i'm the games editor of the guardian i started games writing way back 20 years ago in well i say 1995 and i tell people i started as a games writer for edge magazine uh, which is true but i before that i was a um i actually worked for a game development studio called uh, big red software where i kind of wrote manuals did qa did a little bit of level design and i actually my first piece of paid uh games writing was writing the uh, a tips guide for one of the games I'd actually designed at Big Red Software <laughs> for, uh, for a PC games magazine that is now long defunct. But we made a game. Trading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was the perfect loop uh, and probably be uh, severely frowned upon today. But it wasn't like a feature. It was like a tips guide. So it was yeah. like, I designed the levels and then I told people how to beat them. Um, 
But so, yeah, but, uh, you know, really my career in games journalism started at Edge in 1995 under the editorship of uh, Jason Brooks, um, who is a great editor, great proponent, uh, great uh, lover of Japanese video games. And I learned so much through him. Um, and I was at Edge for two years, uh, went freelance, came back to do DC UK magazine. Uh, so I was associate editor and then editor of, of, of that magazine, which is all about the Dreamcast, uh, which is obviously the, the greatest console in games history. Pretty much. <laughs> and I went freelance again. And um, I think it was in 2000, maybe. I, I, um, I'd i always read The Guardian. I'd read The Guardian since I was 15, 16. And I, on spec, I sent them and I sent Jack Schofield, who was then the kind of editor of The Guardian's online section, which appeared in the newspaper at that time as a Thursday pull-out supplement. I remember, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I um, emailed him and said, look, there's this new thing happening called mobile games. Uh, and no one else was writing about them at the time because they were kind of WAP and SMS-based games. They were these weird quiz games that no one else was writing about because they didn't really fit into the functionality and the form of, of video games at, at that time. And Jack was really interested. Um, so he commissioned me, Jack and Vic Keegan at the time, who was working with him, they commissioned me to write like 90, 100 words on a mobile phone game. And then they commissioned me again, and I just kept jamming my, my foot further into the doorway. Uh, and then in 2004, they asked me to help run a games blog. At that, at that time, the, the Guardian was mad on blogs. Everything was a blog. They had a food blog, a football blog, a politics blog. They were just mad on blogging. And uh, <laughs> they, they wanted to do a games blog. And so they asked me and Greg Housen, another games writer, and Alex Grotowski, the uh, co-presenter of the Bits uh, Channel uh, Channel 4, I think it was, television program on games. Yeah, for later. Yeah, Back that's it. Yeah. Showed good stuff late at night. Yeah, that's it. So, and we all got together. We wrote this blog together, and and that was it. And then they went on to other things, and I I grimly held on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's it. That's my very long biography in video games. Well, that was terrific, Jack. Uh, Keith, thanks very much. Um, no, the, 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 I didn't realize you worked on the the Dreamcast magazine. So that must have been. I mean, it was it was a a personal uh, defeat for all of us who loved video games at the time. But that must have been quite, you know, quite quite a life-changing moment for you. You must have been really invested in that, more so oh, than everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I was never planning on going back into working in-house on one magazine because I was really enjoying freelancing. And my friend, Casper uh, Field, who worked with me on Edge magazine, had been asked to pitch at Future Publishing, uh, Future Publishing in Bath had been a pitch for the official Dreamcast magazine. And Casper, who is a very, very talented uh, magazine designer and editor, had been asked to uh, help do uh, Future's pitch to get the official mag. So he came on board for that, put a brilliant pitch forward to Sega, but Sega decided that they didn't want Future doing their official mag because Future was doing the official mag of the... Um, of the PlayStation and they didn't want, and they didn't want to be in the same company. So they gave it to Dennis. And so, uh, Casper was in charge of then converting that pitch into a independent magazine for Dreamcast. And he called me up and asked me if I'd interested in coming back. It was one of those like film things, you know, when they say to the, 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 the sort of hard edge cop, you know, <laughs> can you come back and do one last mission? And it was kind of like that. Um, oh, it had to be the Dreamcast as well. Yeah, that's the only thing I would have come back for because I, you know, I loved, uh, I, lo I, I love Sega. I'm, I'm a real fan of underdogs. So, you know, I was, uh, I've supported Manchester City all my life and for most of my life they were they were the underdogs and, the, you know, and, and a ridiculous team and Sega a ridiculous company. Um, 
so yeah, it was the uh, that whole underdog thing, and I and I just thought, yeah, I, I really want to get involved in this. It's the only thing I would come back for. So I I came and worked for Casper as associate editor on that magazine, and and yeah, the you know it was uh, I was fascinated by Dreamcast. I was fascinated by what Sega were doing and what they were trying to do, and they were so forward looking in a way, but kind of almost foolishly naively uh, forward looking in the fact that they had you know a fifty six k modem built into this into this console before broadband was was really a thing in terms of a consumer reality and they were producing games like uh quake arena uh and making them work on this format you know years before anyone else was thinking of yeah it. i'm 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 like i played a lot of fantasy star online on my dreamcast it was the first ever oh. online game i played and i'm I'm still amazed at how well it worked on like on a 56k modem like yeah. it's brilliant. I know it's ridiculous and I you know I met the uh, I met the the team behind Fantasy Star Online when I went to uh, Japan um I uh, went to Tokyo Game Show in 2000 and and met the team and uh, and they, they were just telling me that just the the process most of that game's development team was just getting it to work online, but it was a fascinating, you know, in, uh, it was a fascinating cultural thing as well. I often talk about this, but um, the Japanese version of the game went online first, and so I think it was like two months later, maybe longer, when the American and, and Western uh, gamers came onto the servers, and there was this kind of almost this sort of cultural meeting between the Japanese gamers and the and the Western gamers, and there was this kind of sense of of cooperation and sharing that because the grammar of online relationships was still in its infancy it felt like really open and warm and friendly and very different from anything you know I'd experienced on the PC it was just it was kind of a wonderful time yeah it was brilliant um, and they had that, that yeah. brilliant system of the the stickers where you could kind of create oh, yes. like the the call outs and you'd, you'd all make one together and that would be your team's call out oh yeah. so good it was lovely. It was lovely, but there were so many great things uh, about that about that console as well. I mean, some of the the earliest uh, the earliest Dreamcast games that Sega made, stuff like Crazy Taxi, were just so full of life and color and weird ideas that it was just such a pleasure to be on the magazine. But all the time, we had the kind of sword of Damocles hanging over us, or, 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 or the PlayStation Two of Damocles, as it, yeah, as it yeah. was really. But so we, there was always this this sense of doom and i think that made it almost more rich and more fun that sense that it could all end any minute yeah no it, it, it's a, a modern tragedy keith yeah ab- absolutely <laughs> so so where where did your relationship um with games start what was the the first your first experience with a, a video game if you can remember yeah i can't i mean it would have been the late 70s um i would have um a friend of mine we moved to uh Cheadle hume in stockport when i was when i was very young um, um before before the age of 10 um and when i got there one of our neighbors uh invited me round, and he had one of those grandstand tv consoles that played different versions of pong and i can remember playing that and just being just astonished at that just the the fact that there was something happening on television that I was controlling and we were competing on just was magical to me. And um, and then later on in 1981, my dad got a ZX81. He was always really, really into te- technology. So I would do that very typical early 80s thing of, you know, I'd sit there with my dad and my sister and we would type in ZX81 basic code to try and make a very simple, throw a piece of paper in a, in a waste paper basket game 
and we would write it for an hour and then spend three hours debugging it and by then it was time <laughs> it was time to watch Doctor Who. Um but yeah, so that that's that's it. My first experiences were on black and white uh, consoles and on a black and white computer. And then finally, I think it was in 1983, um, my dad decided we needed a Commodore 64 in, in that classic parental guise of it will be good for your homework. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sounds like he was into it though. Like that, yeah, it's nice exactly. that he was sort of like it, it was a family thing, like not yeah. just something you you did alone in your bedroom or anything. Absolutely. It was always like that in my house. And that's why I was, I think that's what, what has shaped my relationship with video games in that my dad was very much a co-conspirator in this, it'll be good for homework uh, lie. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he was into it as well. And so, yeah, but I have wonderful memories of us all sitting around the computer playing games together, playing like the early version of Trivial Pursuits on Commodore 64, but also playing leaderboard, the, the great um, golf game with my dad. Uh, you know, we spent hours playing that game. And I think that's what taught me that, you know, video games weren't this, you know, to me, it always seemed weird that there was this cliche that video games were something that teenage boys did in their rooms, uh, far away from the rest of the family. Uh, it was never like that. You know, our computer was in our kitchen or in our living room, wherever we, wherever we were, the computer was there and, and it was just part of life. And I think, you know, that's how video games are now. And I think that's what gave me kind of a leg up in my understanding of them. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful um, sort of family portrait you're painting, but it, it, I, I do think it's, it is quite rare. I think there is still there is a very definite generation gap with those who had video games and those who didn't. So it's lovely to hear that it was you know it was always a, a family pursuit. Was there was it competitive? Did you get competitive with your your dad? Oh yeah, definitely. Lead leaderboard was incredibly competitive. Uh, we did we we um we took it very seriously. We'd have we'd almost we'd we do um alongside tournaments that were on television, we did our own tournaments. Like we played <laughs> uh, we played uh, I forgot, I think it was international tennis, it probably was, at the same time that Wimbledon was on. So we yeah, we, it was very important to us. I, I drew a lot of graphs and score sheets, that sort of thing. So but I think, <laughs> and I, I even now I don't let my children beat me at video games. I tell, you know, how are they ever gonna learn that way? <laughs> my dad was the same. So yeah, so, it was yeah, it was friendly it was friendly competition, but serious. Do you do you remember a, like maybe maybe there wasn't the point, but do you remember a point where you you kind of separated and games became your thing, and he maybe drifted away from them a bit? I don't really. I mean, I think when I went to I drifted game away from games myself for a couple of years when I went to college. Uh, when I was twenty, I went to college late because I had a had a year had a year off. I wanted to earn some money. Uh, so I went and worked in a bank for a year, um, which is a, a really ridiculous decision. But when, and this was when I was sixteen. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just wanted some money. I was fed up of not having any. So um, and then after that, I went to college, and I really kind of rebelled at, at college. I think because I'd spent a year working in a bank, and it drove me <laughs> bloody mad. Um, so I was just really into uh, booze and. Uh, music and I was doing I was studying drama and I was just into acting so it was kind of me in a way that left games for a little bit and that's when my dad got a mega drive so he he stuck with games and he was really into it and so when I went home because I'd often spend weeks at staying at friends houses and stuff when I went home he'd always have the latest mega drive games so then we'd go back and we'd play PGA Tour and we'd play FIFA so it was kind of a nice sort of shorthand like you know a way to re reconnect yeah so, that's you know, lovely they, it's a kind of yeah i mean it's kind of this theme that's really gone through my life that games are very much about connection I, you know i've always i've always thought that and i think that's i guess i've been lucky in that i've had a family where that has been a thing where that's been possible but yeah 
So was it, there not any, there were no video games at, at university or college or anything? I didn't do that much. When I was actually, when I was at college, when I went to university, sorry, after college, again, I was, I threw myself into, into the culture of university. And um, I was at Warwick University studying drama and English. And I was just absolutely obsessed with music at that time. Although I did live with two computer scientists, and this was in the very early 90s, who were just complete geeks. And they built a local area network in our house at university. Um, so, you know, there's all these wires going through the ceiling between their computers. Uh, and we, we played a lot of, we played stuff like um, uh, Doom um, on a local area network in my university house. But at the same time, it was kind of, it was almost sidelined because I was too busy. Uh, I was really into music and drama and acting. And, and that really kind of took over for a while. But so you wouldn't have summer, been like talking to people about games or anything like that. It was just whatever this, these nerds in my, in my yeah. house have set this up. So I may as well play, but I don't like it. Yeah, well, I, I did like it. There was always part of my brain that was switched on to video games. And, I, you know, I did I, I did enjoy them, but they weren't... Um, there was other stuff going on. Uh, and I, again, I think that was a really important part of my education in video games. And it's part of, you know, the way I write about video games is to always accept them within the other with other in with other kind of cultural forms and i think that's partly because when i was at university games are only part of what i was doing uh i kind of put them to one side however in my summer holidays while i was at university i needed to earn money again and so i worked at big red software and that's that's how i started getting back into games um in between my first and my second year i stayed in leamington where i lived for about three months uh, during the summer holidays and I spent those three months at Big Red Software testing uh, Game Genie codes on the um, Nintendo Game Boy. I do, I do, do you remember the Game Genie? It was kind I of like a cheat game. Genie, yeah. yeah, it was a well, ridiculously elaborate piece of kit, but uh, it, yeah, yeah, it was quite good. Yeah, so but yeah, and basically, yeah, you'd yeah, you put this cartridge into the back of your 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 NES or your Sega Master System. Um, and then you put your cartridge in after it, and it would allow you to input cheats. Well. Um, when I was at Big Red Software, they'd just got the contract from Codemaster to do the Game Boy one. So I sat there with a really, really talented coder called uh, uh, Fred Williams, who reverse engineered the Game Boy. And they had to, you had to reverse engineer it uh, in a way that you could show your workings so that, uh, so that it meant, uh, so that you could bypass uh, copyright laws. You had to show that you'd reverse engineered it in a very straightforward um, way, non-competitive way. I don't remember the, the exact legal ramifications. All I know is that he had like 15 huge folders showing out exactly how he'd reverse engineered this hardware. That's fascinating. I've never I heard know. of that yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. You had, to, you had to be very specific to stay within the legal confines to show that you'd not done anything illegal with this hardware. Uh, and that was fascinating. And so while he was doing that and working out codes or how to make the codes work, I was testing the games and making sure and coming up with good cheats for them that would kind of work. So I played over that summer, I played like 200 Game Boy games and worked out how to beat them all. And so I could tell him what codes we needed uh, for, for, for people to make the games easier. So that was a really weird kind of interesting introduction to the way that video games were made and designed because at that time at Big Red Software they were also helping out Codemasters with other projects like they were helping with the PC version of Micro Machines they were they were still making Spectrum games they made games in the Dizzy uh, series and it was just there was just like eight of us in a room in Leamington um, and it was just this kind of factory line of code it was incredible but so how did you end up there then if, if you had kind of fallen out of love with games a little bit was that just that seems interesting that's a job I need for the summer 
Well, my well, my, um, my best and really only school friend, uh, Jonathan Cartwright, who I'd gone to school with in Stockport, uh, had gone to work at Big Red in Leamington just miraculously at the same time as I was living in Leamington. Uh, we always got on re- we always got on really really well, and we bonded over video uh, video games. He had a Dragon Thirty Two computer, and he used to make games for the Dragon Thirty Two. And often I would design levels for him on graph paper. So he didn't like designing levels; he just liked to code. So he wrote a kind of Marble Madness clone called Rollerball, and I designed all the levels for them on graph paper. Uh, and this was in the kind of late 80s. And so we'd always got on. We'd always bonded over games. And so when he got this job in Leamington at Big Red, he he knew I needed to earn some money to stay at university. So he said, come come and work for us. For, for us. And um, the head of the studio, Paul Ranson, I met him and he said, yeah, sure. There's loads of stuff you can do. Um, come in and, and work for us. And that's how it started. And then every summer after that. And then when I left university, I, I worked there for like six months to a year as well. Um, in fact, I pitched a game uh, I designed and pitched a new game to uh, Domark, to Ian Livingston, when he was the head of Domark. Yeah. And, uh, um, he really liked the game, but he he couldn't see it being a success at that time. But uh, that was that was that was an interesting process. So was that like uh, I'm I'm now fascinated by the the drama. Did you ever do anything with that? Um, well, you could say I kind of use it in my every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I uh, well, not really. Um, it's. I mean, it's given me a great insight into the, the dynamics of human relationships. Uh, I, um, I did a lot of improvisation, and I did a lot of uh, did a lot of directing. Um, big, kind of reasonably big casts. I directed stuff, and I start. Uh, I, I acted in stuff as well. But when I left, I think what I realised was that I didn't want to spend my lifetime. I, I was interested in the idea of being an actor, but I didn't want to spend like ten years waiting tables, uh, which is what. The reality is for most actors. Yeah, totally. Um, and I just thought directing is so competitive in the theatre and in film. I just didn't have that that ridiculous desire to be poor for twenty years just to have a chance of making a short film for you know for S four C or something. So um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I just. I kind of uh, I kind of dropped out of uh, drama and went more into the English side of things, and that's you know I, I always really loved writing. I loved doing that. So when this job came up at Edge Magazine, actually as a staff writer, I sort of thought, well, you know, I'll do this for a year, and then maybe I'll go back and do an MA, or maybe I'll do a script writing course. And twenty years later, I'm still here. <laughs> I'm I'm interested actually. There's there's something. Purely, I mean, perhaps you've kind of you don't think about the, the sort of some of the dramatic dramatic stuff you would have learned at university, but there's a certain element to games, especially kind of stuff like World of Warcraft or any kind of um, role playing game, essentially, where you know there, there's an element of of performance in that. Do you do you ever sort of think about that, and in relation to how how someone would perform, like on a stage or as an actor? Yeah, because I certainly do that. Like I, I, I've spoken to other people about this. Like in games like Fallout, I, I, I can't be evil. I can't. I can't. I, I'm always playing the character, and I find it really difficult to to break out of that. It's a weird psychological tick. Yeah, absolutely. I'm fascinated by the relationship between the player and the lead protagonist in terms of is it representative is it collaborative or is it performative you know so as when you're playing a character are you trying to do the things you think that character would do 
are you you using the character as a tool or are you self-consciously acting the game? I think, you know, this is, you mentioned the role-playing genre, which I think is obviously a, the obvious example of that, except often in role-playing games, the role-playing is essentially just putting on a costume yeah. and pretending. Uh, but it's very much, it's, it's very different. One game that really struck me as had interesting things to say about video games as performance was Heavy Rain. And I know it's a, you know, it's a it's incredibly flawed and very divisive game. But there are sections in that game very early on when you're playing as as the lead character. It's Ethan, isn't it? I think I've, uh, I've, I've never played Heavy Rain. Oh, okay. I've only ever looked at sort of comedy skits about <laughs> it on YouTube. Unfortunately, <laughs> That's I did fine. play the one before that. But was it Fahrenheit? The one on the PS2? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. That was, that was Fahrenheit. Well, I mean, Heavy Rain is an is a psychological drama about a guy whose son is. Um, is taken away by a, a serial killer and he's got a certain amount of time to try and find him. But very early on in the game, you find yourself doing lots of everyday tasks. You've got to change your child's nappy. You've got to look after your son. You've got to play fight with them. But there's also scenes in the game where you're given control over the character while he's receiving information from another character. And these very kind of cinematic scenes where when I was playing it, I really felt like I was moving around in the environment to add interest for the spectator. So I'd go, you know, what would what would the key character be doing now? Oh, maybe he'd wander around behind this chair. Maybe he'd stand. <laughs> maybe he'd lean against this wall. So I found myself directing the lead character as though there was someone else watching it in a very kind of performative way. Um, so, yeah, that was very interesting. Also, Quantum Break, which is just about to come out. Obviously, with that game by uh, by Remedy, they're intercutting the interactive elements of the game, which is a sort of science fiction game about time travel, with these twenty minute kind of television episodes, essentially. But that is creating a very interesting dynamic between you playing the characters and then you watching the characters being portrayed in a television program in a way that's actually very subtly different from watching a, you know a CGI rendered sequence. You know, lots of people saying. Oh, Quantum Break, all it is is kind of Metal Gear Solid and it uses very long cutscenes. But it's very different psychologically to watch actors portraying an action and then for you to inhabit those characters and for you to do so interconnect constantly through the game in a very kind of very rigid, focused way. So, um, and I think that, again, has very interesting questions to ask about our relationships with characters. Are we performing as them? Are we inhabiting them? Um, so yeah, I, I, I constantly think about this yeah, and, and write very long features. Yeah, about it. <laughs> the, the one that really struck me recently was um, uh, the Last of Us, like mm. b because of the way that that ends. Like it, 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 it makes it so you're so aware that you are you are not in control of this. You are yes. you are playing this character, and that's what made it so powerful i think at the end it's like i don't really agree with what's happening here but you you have to play through the motions and i, I find that fascinating yeah i think i think the last of us is one of the most interesting video games about video games that's ever been made because yeah there's that sense that all the way through the game they're feeding you control and then they take it away i don't want to say too much about the ending obviously but um that game is very much about control um, in fact, all of uh, all of Naughty Dog's games, you know, the Uncharted series, again, is about that relationship between you and Nathan. Uh, you know, what is the extent of that relationship? How much control do you have? I, all of their games are quite kind of self-referential, very subtly so. But yeah, Last of Us, I've, I found I found that incredibly challenging to to have control, but then have it taken away. I found that fascinating. 
so like i mean this is all good chat but and, and but i'm because you moved away from video games for a while when you, you started working at edge and things did how how were you viewing video games did you see them as kind of oh this is a, a fun lark or had you started to kind of think about them more critically i think i was at the beginning of thinking about them more critically definitely and i think that only games magazine i could have worked for at that time was edge because it allowed you to have that slight distance from them because you were you know the way you wrote for edge was very much that you were kind of representing edge and you were thinking about games in a different way almost as a kind of a uh, disinterested scientist rather than as a you know as a as a fan that's one of the greatest descriptions of the sort of edge house style i've ever, <laughs> ever heard disinterested yeah. scientist yeah exactly um but that's how it felt and that that was really important to me but also i brought lots of kind of cric- critical uh ways uh, cultural and critical ways of interrogating media from doing drama and from doing English and I was really really lucky to study drama under some really really clever interesting offbeat people at work university um, so we did lots of work on things like semiotics in theatre you know theatre is uh, essentially is a system of signs uh, we did you know when we really interrogated plays in a very different abstract way and I think I was able very quickly to bring that into video games and to think about video games as systems of icons and signs and that really fascinated me so even though I loved you know when I got to Edge it was 1995 and we had like Virtua Fighter we had uh, we had Sega Rally we had Ridge Racer we had these kind of fundamental games of the early polygonal texture mapped graphical era I was really fascinated and loved playing them and was enthusiastic about them. But I was also able to kind of step back a bit and ask, well, you know, what what is this third dimension? Um, what does this third dimension mean to us and about the way that games are being represented represented on screen and, and our relationship with them? And there was like an amazing re- change then, like over the next sort of five or six years when games really, you know, flourished, like when it got to the PlayStation 2 and Dreamcast and not just in the the fidelity and, and, and the 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 craft of the game themselves but just in the how how much they were representing you know how broad they were able to become yeah absolutely i mean i think one of the fundamental shifts was obviously with the with with doom and and the the idea of a first person na- uh, narrative uh, first person shooting game was really really important um but yeah 3d graphics and 3d environments and worlds which are immersive and not really photorealistic but certainly kind of i guess realistic in a way that you could op- you could explore a real open world what opened up tons of really interesting possibilities uh, and again like placed the gamer in a really different position in terms of design like you weren't if you played a game like driver for example not only were you free to drive around a city but it also came with these interesting little mini games where for example you might just have to try and get away from the cops for for as as long as you could and it really started, you know, games like Driver really started playing with the idea of space and the possibilities of space in really interesting new ways. Um, so it was a fascinating time to be to be in games. And we were working uh, in the Edge office. We had the Sega Saturn. We had uh, the 3DO. We had the PlayStation. But we also had these kind of legacy in-betweener consoles like the CD32, the Amiga, and the CDI, the Philips CDI. And... In a very short space of time, in fact, in what, on one games table at Future, you had this weird shift in the way games were perceived by development studios and by manufacturers as something which was a product that was designed, here are all the levels, here are the l- number of lives you've got, you've got to get this high score. 
you could get those consoles, chuck them off the table, put the PlayStation down, the Saturn down, and suddenly it was all different. It was about here is a world and this is a playground and um, it's up to you as a player to investigate that playground. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Do you Were there ever any CDI or um, 3DO games that, that made any impact on you just because purely they've never come up before? And I yeah. remember them thinking they were like, you know, they looked amazing, but they were always a bit garbage. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, the CDI was, I think the CDI, had, 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 to be honest, had broken by the time I got there. I don't know if, that, <laughs> I don't know if it had just overheated or it had just been thrown against the wall. Uh, but the 3DO had some really interesting early games. It had a really, I wish I could remember the name and I can't, but it had a really kind of ethereal space flight simulator, um, which was very minimalistic and really quite odd now i wish i could remember the name of it because obviously now i'm thinking oh no man's sky it's you know it's yeah, a very totally. similar idea um but it also had return fire was on the 3do which was a very interesting early um two-player competitive strategy game um which was very influential but just happened to come on the 3do and 3do obviously was where ea uh kind of birthed some of its modern franchises franchises and its modern approach to gaming because 3do was was kind of uh, embryonically linked with uh, ea through trip hawkins who founded both companies so so yeah 3do was quite interesting and it also used the cd-rom drive um in new ways yeah it didn't have Lots a couple of-, of like zelda games like exclusive to the 3do like weird kind of oh, story games like point it and had- click almost well, yeah, that's an incredibly complicated story behind those games. But yeah, it did. It had a Zelda game. And I think it had a Mario game. And they were they were kind of um, FMV cartoon games, yeah. which were licensed to Philips, I think it was, from, from Nintendo. They were um, bizarre. You can actually watch the uh, multimedia components on YouTube, and it's, it's really worth watching them because they are very weird. And you cannot imagine Nintendo releasing those characters in that format uh, you know, it's bizarre now to look at them, but yeah, it's really worth it. Yeah, uh, Jumpgate was the name of the the game, I believe. Oh yes, that sounds familiar. That's it. Yeah, because I I gave it seven out of ten, I think in age. <laughs> but, the, uh, but then the, the the development team sent me this imploring letter to tell me that I'd misunderstood their game. Um, but you know, that was in the days where people could only complain via letter, uh, <laughs> which is the glory days of game journalism, obviously. <laughs> Have you like? I mean, I, I don't want to get you into trouble or anything but do you i mean reviews are such a, a a tricky beast anyway like has there been occasions where you've you've reviewed a game and and something similar has happened someone's forced you to kind of reappraise it and you're like oh, okay maybe maybe <laughs> i got that wrong oh yeah i mean there's i don't you know you you don't review anything and not occasionally make mistakes you yeah know, it's, ne- it's never going to happen i'm trying to think of like the most obvious occasions where i've i've definitely there's been games i've overscored definitely that i just got really really into and now i look back and think oh my god why did i give that um like one example everyone says that i overscored pilot wings for the n64 i gave it nine out of ten for edge in fact i'm not sure if everybody knows it was me that reviewed it but now everybody does um that was but, a brilliant game though well yeah it? but at the time everybody was you know people were saying it was nowhere near as good as mario and it was just an average nintendo game but i i just absolutely loved it i just loved the atmosphere it created and that sense of freedom and swooping over the city and just being able to hear the noises of the city as you were there and then and they would fade out as you flew up higher. Oh, it's that, so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But lots of people, I got a lot of flack for overscoring that. Um, 
I'm not sure. I don't think I, you know, I didn't do the, any sort of classic edge mess ups, you know, the, the famous <laughs> tooth one. But I, I'm always kind of very defensive about that because I think it's very easy with hindsight to look at Doom and what it created and think, oh, it's obvious it was just, you know, it was just a Twitch shooter. Why should you ever be able to talk to the enemies in it? But you know, that, I think that was that was at a time. Did where you write game, that? Did you write that, that okay, caption? That was that wasn't me. No, right, okay, that okay. was slightly before my time. I think I don't I, I don't know who it was. I probably I I probably wouldn't I would probably wouldn't tell you if I did. But I don't That's think. Fine. I, That's fine. <laughs> but yeah, that that sort of thing happened. So I've made lots of mistakes, um, and I think what you don't realize often when you're outside of any form of journalism, um, but games journalism is just part of it in terms of, you know, we had three week, three and a half week deadlines to produce magazines and it was incredibly hard work. Uh, just in those days, sourcing screenshots often meant sourcing 35 millimeter slides from developers in Japan. So for a one page preview, you, you could be looking at, you know, two, three days work. It was just so hard. Um, uh, but, you know, wonderful wonderful fun but hard but hard work and we'd you know on edge magazine we'd often at a deadline we'd have our own kind of mini crunch and we'd, we'd spend three or four days in the office we'd we'd sleep in the office we'd work all night before deadline to get these stupid things finished um but there was a lot of pressure on us you know there's always financial pressure especially on the dreamcast magazine as well i was under constant uh financial scrutiny because the sales weren't amazing because people weren't interested in Dreamcast, the idiots. Um, <laughs> so you may have to make a lot of decisions, often at three o'clock in the morning, with so many factors going on in the background that you know you, you made mistakes. Uh, and the this, this same thing happens now in games journalism. I mean, it's kind of highly pressurized, lots happening at once. Uh, you know, we're on a 24-hour a day, seven days a week news cycle. Now people are human and they make mistakes, and it and it and it happens. So yeah, I've made I've definitely made my fair share. Um, well, let's not dwell on them though. Let's not <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> so did did you like clearly you were kind of all in on it then? You know when you went freelance and stuff. So were you? Was it just like you that this was seemed like oh this is fun I can do this? Or were you, you starting to become really invested in games and like can you think of any games that might have? solidified your your kind of stance that oh, this is this is the the future kind of thing or not the future necessarily but there's so much potential here yeah i mean i think really i was so spoiled in those first two years at edge and i remember and there was two very different games sega rally i thought was wonderful i absolutely loved it because to me it continued this legacy that sega had with their racing games of creating games which were about the joy of driving not about competing if you played out in the arcade it was reasonably tough but yu suzuki wanted it to be about the joy and experience of being in a car and driving through california i thought sega rally really kind of encapsulated that sense of being in an environment and just enjoying enjoying the feeling of your tires slipping along a gravel surface enjoying that sense that you're just about to lose control but then you don't um i felt i just felt that was a profoundly beautiful driving game which understood the appeal of driving games that exists way beyond lap times and uh, or, you know, all that kind of paraphernalia of gaming. But also a very different game was Civilization. And I just became, uh, I mean, that game to me was so compulsive and so fascinating that I, I remember I almost got fired on Edge magazine because um, 
I was supposed to I was supposed to write about 25 30 pages an issue uh, Civilization came in on the first week of an issue when I was there and I played it solidly for two weeks I didn't write anything else I handed in this two two page article uh, to my editor and he said okay that's great where's the other 18 pages and uh, I said yeah I'm probably gonna have to write those tonight um, <laughs> So, but to me, uh, so this was Civilization Two, by the way. Sorry, not the, not the original Civilization. Civilization Two, I think, significantly shifted the buck in terms of what that series could do. And I still find, I still kind of see it as the purest uh, iteration of that series. But what it had to tell us about the way mankind had evolved and the way societies and cultures evolve, and it was so intricate and so well thought out, and told me so much about the way I interacted with things, the way I approached tasks as well. It, I think it's a really fascinating game. And we were playing that and we were playing SimCity as well, which again, it gave you an environment and allowed you to play and allowed you to experiment. And those games were really fundamental, I think, for me in terms of thinking, right, video games aren't just a fun thing to write about and I like writing. These are things that are important and I think are going to kind of change the world in a lot of ways and are going to really, really push culture in new, in new directions. I think it was definitely, really, Sega Rally kind of gave me my love of games back, but Civilization 2 gave me my understanding that games have a lot to say and a, and a lot to give to culture. And like on the, the Civilization tip, because like it's, it's it, similar to you, like I didn't actually play a Civilization game until 4, Right uh, and and I lost a lot of time to that. So, <laughs> has there ever been a game aside from Civ that you kind of you had to walk away from that that kind of consumed your life to the point where it was becoming a problem? <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah. Interestingly, uh, fo- uh, Championship Manager and then Football Manager um, were games like I, I've always really liked football, but I've never been the sort of gu- guy who would come into the office on Monday morning and and sort of ritualistically break down and analyze Saturday's game. I was never really into football in that way. I just love watching it and appreciate the beauty and sublime skill that, that uh, footballers have. So I was really interested in football. Um, but when I started playing chat manager, I loved it because it's systemized football and I'm real, I, I'm a real lover of systems. I love, I love systems. I love trying to work things out. And I love the way championship manager systemized football into, into a kind of a flow chart of, of skill and chance. Yeah. So I got, I got really into that. And then the kind of almost the worst possible thing to happen happened in the uh, fo- uh, future magazine was given the license to create a championship manager magazine. <laughs> and, uh, my, my friend Lee Hall was brought on as editor, who's a real champ man nut. He knows everything about that game. It was a champ and, manager magazine. That blows my yes. mind. Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah. So this was early. I think this was probably 2001, 2002. Um, so my friend Lee Hall was doing it and he needed like an experienced hand who knew a little bit about football to help him, uh, launch the mag. Cause I launched, I've launched a lot of magazines. Um, so, um, he, I came on to help him with that. And when he left, I eventually took it over and I saw the magazine through the transition from championship manager to football manager magazine. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was writing about football manager, playing football manager constantly, getting home, playing it, playing it on a laptop on the way home, playing it in bed, playing it when I woke up. Um, it was, it was just ridiculous, but I just found it just utterly, utterly fascinating. If I, I think if I hadn't been a football supporter, I think I still would have found it interesting because it's really about 
how much of football, how much of any human activity is down to skill? How much of it is down to luck? And how can we really predict what's going to happen in the future from what we've been able to do in the past? It asked, it kind of, to me, it was asking these questions and I found that really interesting. And I also, the structure of the game in that it's based obviously around matches every week. It's a perfect kind of machine of compulsion. It's oh, very absolutely. kind of, yeah, it's very Skinner testy, isn't it? But it's also, I started, um, I did a feature, I can't remember what magazine it was for, but why championship manager addiction was kind of like heroin addiction because the rhythms of the addictions are, are very similar in that, you you know, you get a, a first high, it come, you get a come down, and then you get a compulsion to do it again. And the compulsion only remembers the good side, not the bad side. So, um, so yeah, I, I found it, to me, it was both a very compulsive game, but also a very interesting experiment in in compulsion and, and addiction. But you 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 put it down at some point. Yeah, I suddenly realised that. Yeah, I I think I think when I was waking up in the middle of the night, thinking, "Hang on, why don't I try three five two here?" Because I really <laughs> <laughs> I really need that extra man, manpower in midfield. I think that's when I realised that things had things had gone too far. But that game is a wonderful game to write about and, and explore. And it's kind of underexplored because people are a bit kind of, you know, it's football manager, it's about football. So people are kind of a little bit dismissive about it as a kind of what it offers to the culture and the science of, of video games. But I think, you know, it's a rich, there's a rich, there are rich seems to be explored in that game. I, I don't know that that strikes me as that, that that's interesting because I'm not sure if it's got, I think it's probably got more to say perhaps about the, how the people how people play it as opposed to the sort of culture as a whole it's more to do with how people interact with systems maybe like i mean you see that writ large with a lot of you know the, the whole science behind pay to play and, and mobile gaming and you know it's, it's trying to lock into these psychological cues that people have to try and extract money from them essentially but also you know provide a certain amount of pleasure yeah yeah definitely i mean it is yeah it was kind of uh a proto pay to play game without yeah. the monetized mechanic it had it had the um yeah it had I'm sure the it's kind a matter of, of time keith <laughs> yeah i hope not if miles jacobson listens to this then please don't do that miles <laughs> um but yeah it has the gameplay mechanics without the cynical uh, monetization model which which um upsets uh, some people a lot of people uh even though you know free to play games are free to play for a reason you know that dynamic is one that the audience has brought about as much as the publishers so you know we weep we reap what we sow i think yeah i mean i do like i, I find that whole side of it fascinating the kind of psychological ticks um mm-hmm. but i also try and avoid it as much as i can <laughs> yeah uh, yeah for those exact reasons that's why i never played anything like world of warcraft or anything because i know how much i would have loved that and yeah, I'm, I'm saving stuff like that for my retirement. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that, I mean, that's a good point as well. I was really annoyed the other day that The Observer did this um, article as part of a, um, an examination of loneliness. And they they did like a sort of throwaway article on 10 things to do to avoid loneliness. And they didn't have video games in there, which to me is just ridiculous because I can't I can't even recall the number of times I've heard people say World of Warcraft is what gave me the ability to talk to other people you know people um not only people have problems socially uh you might have like geographic problems socializing with other people they might be very remote they might have uh, problems with socializing um because they're autistic for example um and 
with a game like World of Warcraft or in any role-playing game or any multiplayer game, you enter a community in which you are judged on what you provide in that game space. And I think games are an amazing tool to people who maybe feel alone and don't feel as though they can meet or get on with other people. Uh, it's massively overlooked. I mean, I, I really feel there's a case for video games being made available to, to, to people as a as a kind of as a therapy because they're oh, 100%, so yeah yeah I, I found out this morning about this uh, amazing kind of old woman who uh, is a youtube streamer and she plays skyrim and oh, she, yeah. she calls everybody her her grandchildren as she plays <laughs> with them uh, and it's beautiful and she's got and, and it's 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 you know the the antithesis of what you usually consider to be like a youtuber and their relationship with their their chat it's yeah. just this beautiful homely kind of community it's lovely I think I think so, yeah. And I think you know, game communities get a lot of stick. But you know, when you when you join a community of very engaged people in video games, you know, we saw it with Fancy Star Online. People see it with World of Warcraft. You're joining a community which, which for the large extent, for the for the most for the majority of people, want to create an, a community of kindness of openness of accepting of diversity i think i think that's that does happen online and that is a lot of people's experience of it so yeah i, th- I think it's i think it's i think that's really valuable so how um how did your sort of relationship with games grow over the years like after the the sad loss of the dreamcast were you kind of <laughs> like that's it as the end of games as we know it from now on, or were you still quite excited about the the future? Well, obviously, I wore black for a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I think I picked myself up reasonably well. In fact, picking myself up was well. Actually, I left the Dreamcast magazine because I did find that heartbreaking. Uh, I left it. Um, I think it was December two thousand and one, maybe. And um, it folded the next issue. I felt kind of guilty about that because I felt like I'd abandoned my team. But I found it it was becoming so difficult and so all-consuming that I I sort of had to walk away from it. But really, all I did was walk into the next office to the PlayStation magazine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you were a traitor I as know, well. I terrible. Yeah. No. I mean, I needed work. So, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, so I did. I mean, essentially... I, went, I think I went through a stage of thinking, oh, um, can I still do this because I put so much into that magazine? I did. I had a, a time when I wondered if I could still do it. And I was living. I was actually living with Kieran Gillen at the time. Um, me and him shared a house in in Bath uh, with a couple of other journalists. And I can remember coming home one day and telling Kieran that I just don't think I can do this anymore. I think I, I, that I couldn't write about games anymore. I just kind of had it. I'd burnt out. Because I was writing so much, and I wasn't really believing in what I was doing. And um, did you write you a manifesto? Yeah, <laughs> the new Keith manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was really, it was really pretentious, but he did the trick. Uh, no, he, um, no, he. I mean, he just said, "Find what it is you love about the games again, and write about that." You know, and he was busy formulating his own way of writing about games. And, you know, he was obviously massively inspirational to me in like the early two thousands. You know, he did write the new games um, journalism manifesto, which I wrote about very early on in the in the Guardian Games blog because I found it really fascinating. And what he was really writing about, and what a lot of people kind of misinterpreted or lost within that whole idea of having a go at journalists for putting themselves at the centre of the story, the fundamentally important thing that Kieran said was that video games 
are no longer, and this is something I've, you know, I said earlier in this chat, aren't really now about scores and about having this fixed experience, which is given to you by a, uh, by a very kind of didactic game designer. They're about exploring and about environments and about tourism in a way. So that video game writers are going to have to become tourist writers, not just subjective writers, but writers of environments. And I found that really, really interesting and really changed my relationship with games and the way I thought and wrote about them. So when I started playing things like Grand Theft Auto Vice City, what that game offered to me beyond its kind of rather trite reworking of Scarface tropes was a real world with a day-night cycle with a massive environment where I could just mess around and drive a car off of the mountain if I wanted to or you know do what I wanted and this was a kind of fundamental shift in what games were and and I suddenly thought this is something that's really interesting because now I can write about architecture and I can write about the philosophy of of virtual spaces and what that means because at the same time we had things like second life coming in yeah and there's this whole kind of uh, there was this whole kind of wonderment and interest in the possibility of virtual spaces and what they meant and who we were in those spaces were we ourselves were we being other people what was our relationship with the avatars that was all really fascinating to me at the same time as it being fun to shoot people from a moving car so so yeah I think that was really important. Um, I remember at the time, actually, like, because that was also kind of very well timed, like with uh, the, the increase in people having the internet and there was a lot of like forums and stuff. I remember specifically like stuff like uh, early edge forums, there would be when Grand Theft Auto came out, which was kind of a, a big surprise. Like nobody was necessarily expecting that game. The it suddenly became a very early version of Let's Play, essentially, like in all these sort of forum threads, rather than people talking perhaps about techniques, it was just people telling stories. It was like, oh, this happened. Oh, look at what happened here. And because it was so early on the internet, obviously there was no streaming. There was, you know, pictures at best. But it just became like sitting around a campfire sharing stories. It wasn't, it wasn't tactics. It wasn't skills or, you know, showing off or anything. Yeah, I mean, we'd entered this very important phase where the where the gamer becomes a co-designer in a sense or co-curator of the experience. Um, in that, yeah, it's not just about fulfilling fulfilling the prophecy of the game design. It's about exploring the space yourself and and then discussing those experiences with your friends. That you know that was something that happened very much in the early two thousands. That acceptance on the part of game designers that maybe the best stories that a game player is ever going to tell are the stories of the games that they played and not the ones that we designed um you know so you've got all these people talking about uh you know fascinating things that they'd bumped into in the grand theft auto world little glitches sometimes yeah. their own experiences and there was this understanding at rockstar that this was as important as the missions that they'd written themselves and it wasn't only Rockstar at that time. It was lots of other developers. I mean, obviously, Peter Molyneux um, was playing a lot around the idea of, of player freedom and, um, and creating spaces where, where players could, uh, could uh, project their own ideas of what a world can do on, onto the space. So, there, I mean, there were, there were lots, but it was, it was around that time. And it was really important for someone who wanted to write about games, but was kind of running out of the love of writing about games, for games suddenly to open up this amazing new... Uh, perspective on what on what games were 
yeah i mean do you, do you think that's do you think that's happened again since do you think the the kind of the the indie game sort of renaissance of maybe seven or eight years ago had a similar kind of impact i think would it, yeah. maybe, maybe it was mobile as well actually mobile was probably quite a seismic shift well i think mobile was different in that it changed our relationship with games and that they were suddenly i mean obviously we've always had handheld games but but they've always been a kind of a buy-in thing so you knew you were buying a nintendo ds to play games on but when you bought a first generation iphone you didn't know you were buying that to play games on and i think that's i think what phones have done is fundamentally changed people's relationships to games in that they have become um something that you timetable into your day that it's just they were you know mobile phones classically were like the trojan horse of games and that lots of people now playing candy crush and threes who will still say no i don't play games even though they've spent two and a half hours on a train yeah. playing um so th- i think what mobile did was slotted games into the spaces in people's lives where they didn't realize they needed them i think what indie games have done have allowed people to understand that games can be subjective and autobiographical and strange and weird and communicative in ways that they didn't realize games could be before. So, you know, for example, if you played something like uh, Dysphoria by Anna Anthropy or Passage by uh, Jason Rower, you are having an experience within that that's subjective, which is interpretive, which you might not it may not be, be a classical games experience, but it's having a, a kind of a communion with another human mind and trying to understand that person. Video games in the indie era, era are doing that now in ways that they couldn't have done, I guess, pre-2008. Yeah, and I, I think it is, it's going to be a lot of it to do with the tools and that there, there is a much more direct one-to-one, as you said, like it's a communion with another person and it is oftentimes literally another person like or, or perhaps two or three making a very specific um statement essentially yeah via games yeah definitely i mean i i continually come back to this um but it's very similar you know this is by no means a profound observation it's one that lots of people have made but we're in a time now which is very similar to the music in the it's the music industry in the mid to late 70s where suddenly there was the availability of uh, cheaper synthesizers but also cheaper uh, recording equipment four track tape recorders you could buy a guitar an electric guitar in a second hand store you could learn three chords and you could make a band or you could buy a mini moog and make weird progressive music. So, um, so you had in the late 70s and, uh, and mid 70s in music, you had this sudden uh, coming together of technology, but also cultural shifts, political shifts, things that were happening in the world in the 70s, you know, uh, glo- global recession, the oil prices, uh, lots of things that are happening in society came together and created punk and post punk and also experimental electronic music. You know, they all came out of this weird melting pot of things that were happening and i think that's what's happening with indie since 2008 maybe since braid is that we had the internet as a as a mass communication device uh cheap tools like uh source engine ids engine um those came in but at the same time maybe something else was happening in culture and society as well i mean since 2008 we've had the collapse of the world economy lots of anxiety about where life is where we're going uh lots of understanding that we need different voices in culture which is happening throughout society now 
culture needs to project and accept different voices than the kind of the the sort of mono myth that that games have have given us over the last sort of you know before that of the you know the the brooding male protagonist <laughs> there's this yeah. understanding culturally that we have to move along away from that and that all happened at the same time as the as the tools becoming available to to talk about different things so that's been incredibly important and i i very much see you know music 1977 being very very similar to games 2015-16 yeah i mean i, I am I, i'm i'm still hoping for the the sort of uh the video game studio equivalent of of crass or something some kind of <laughs> anarchist anti-capitalist because you don't really as much as there are all kinds of sort of fascinating areas being explored i i, I mean perhaps this is purely just because I don't have as much experience, but a lot of them seem to be much more about uh, personal conflict and and or, or at best kind of societal um, prejudices, I suppose, as opposed to like systemic kind of problems. There there is no kind of anti Thatcher, like you know, in the same sort of sense in the seventies, very anti establishment. I mean, perhaps because the establishment is is more shadowy which is perhaps why a lot of <laughs> a lot of sci-fi games are all about the corporations running the world and stuff yeah i mean there have been um i mean stuff like sweatshop is and uh, i yes. suppose is a good example but and there's there's also the italian studio um while industria uh who made the mcdonald's game and, i do not know about that see so uh, there, yes there, there um well there was in the in the mid 2000s when you got kind of things like flash becoming available and so you had a cheap tool which was easily uh, which made games that were kind of easy to get to other people there was this actual uh, there was this kind of burgeoning political uh, per- persuasive gaming scene of which Molay Industria was one of the key uh, proponents. Um, in fact, um, Ian Bog- uh, Bogost, the uh, famous uh, academic and writer about video games, was heavily involved in that scene. And um, with, I think it was um, Clive Thompson, they had a great blog called Water Cooler Games, which is all about kind of persuasive games and um, games which had a kind of social and political message. Um, and uh, that was really kind of that was really interesting in the mid two thousands. Uh, but yeah, I think after that, for some reason, that that sense of games as a political thing gave way to games as a subjective, um, uh, emotional, psychological, uh, th- uh, I don't know, outlet, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I don't know why. I guess is we can say what we like now uh, about politics through GIFs. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah. There will come a day, Keith, where all there is is GIFs. That's, that's it. That's how everyone culture. communicates. Yeah, I know that. That is it. The gifification <laughs> of uh, culture. I, so I, I want welcome that future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least it will. At least it will be over in three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this is something that's come up on the show quite a lot. And as somebody who like is is the editor um, of a game section of like a national newspaper, this must be something that is is a problem. Is is the because of what we were just talking about, you know, the democratization of all the tools, there is now just a wealth of games. There are too many games, you know. A lot of people oh, I've spoken yeah. to, we have we have this history and, you know, people of a similar age, they will probably, I feel like at least, have played all of the, you know, so-called important games up until about six or seven years ago. And now I don't <laughs> even know what the important games are anymore because there's just so many. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I keep I keep a list, a, a Google Excel spreadsheet of games that I really ought to be thinking about. And every time I go on Twitter and, uh, you know, a, an indie game is mentioned that I've not heard of, I, I add it to this list. But the list is ridiculous. It's coming so long now, I can't possibly deal with it. So, but, you know, one of the interesting things about journalism is that what people lack in this age of diversity and of the, the sheer availability of cultural product is aggregation and so it's kind of unfortunately one of our key roles now as journalists is performing this role of curator and aggregator and signposting to people what are the interesting games so you know as a as a journalist and editor I kind of rely on my writers um, to to kind of I, I, I have a lot of writers that specialize in certain areas and who I trust to know that area really really well so I've kind of got this network. It's kind of like football manager in a sense. And I've got, <laughs> I've got lots of scouts who understand areas of the games of, of, of the games industry quite well and can report back to me and will tell me this is really important. This is, you know, this is a story we should we should pick up on. So, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting in that the sh- the sheer volume of stuff now is both a difficulty and an opportunity for journalism going forwards because you know lots of people say well you know, what role does journalism have in the era of the youtuber and i think the role that we have is one of aggregation but also being able to take a cultural step back and look at games as in, in a wider way and try to understand games from a from a, a wider kind of cultural standpoint rather than twitch streaming um you know twitch streaming far cry primal for two hours it's our role is to look at Far Cry Primal and say, well, what does this tell us about where games are going? Um, which happens less, I think. I mean, we do have kind of like video game um, vloggers who will will take that kind of uh, cultural eye, but mostly, uh, you know, that's that's a minority. So I think that's really how I see my role in some ways to look at games and create an understanding of the systems of the way that games are made and what's interesting game developers and give that to my readers in a format which is interesting to them and digestible and makes them feel as though they have a sort of at least a handle on on where games are because yeah you're right it's it's bloody crazy isn't it so it hard. is yeah you must like <laughs> I, I i wonder if if i was in your position if i'd ever feel comfortable playing anything because i'm just oh, surely i should be playing maybe i should try this maybe i should be playing this yeah, it's, oh, it's a choice paralysis, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's prevalence everywhere, <laughs> yeah. obviously. But yeah, yeah it's, it's exactly. a fascinating thing. Yeah. Um, so are you, uh, or do you remain, like, very excited about the, the future of games? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I am um, I'm just an optimist. I'm a, I'm a passionate advocate of what video games can do. I'm all... I, I'm an unabashed optimist. I can't help it. Um, I abhor cynicism. I think it's the most destructive thing in journalism and in culture. Um, I I feel kind of genuine pity for people who self-identify as uh, as, um, as cynical. Um, I, you know, I feel that's emotional and psychological dead end. I'm incredibly optimistic about things. I'm really, really. I love games. I love them so much um, that. Yeah, I, everything that I do comes out of that enthusiasm and, and that love of them and the potential that they give us, the potential that they afford us as gamers, as writers, as purveyors of culture and society. Uh, so when I think, oh my God, I've got 100 games to play, at one point, you know, one part of my brain is like, 
God, my God, how long can you do this for? And another part is, wow, 100 games. That's amazing. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it's complex, but I really see it. You know, video games are an incredible opportunity and in, an incredible thing to try. And even if it means I play those 100 games for like 10 minutes each and try to pick out the ones that I love, at least that's an incredible experience that I can share with other people. Yeah, I mean, do you, like, are there games, like, recently that, that have kind of, because you know time is very precious but other games that have kind of really stuck with you and like had this profound effect because i'm starting to wonder now the more i do this and the more people i speak to you know uh music is the best example like people's music tastes and and the albums and the the songs they feel most importantly are generally the songs they experienced from the age of about 16 to like 22 and that's that's you because you were at this very malleable stage and with games i i I tend to think the same sort of thing because i'm always thinking about stuff like like rares and and crazy taxi and tony hawk's pro skater these these are big games for me but they are all the games i played when i was 20 and 21 and when games were sort of broadening so i wonder if that that is a thing or or if it is just but it's tricky with games though because they're always constantly evolving so you always have the new things so yeah difficult i i very much take the John Peel approach to life in that I, you know, John Peel um, never wanted to stullify or or stagnate in in one area of music, um, either in terms of genre or in terms of era. Um, You know, he had, you know, he, there were bands he loved and he loved all the way through his broadcasting career, but he was always open and receptive to new bands. And he would, you, you'd never, when you were listening to shows, which I did religiously uh, throughout throughout my life from 15 to to when he sadly to when he sadly died what you always knew about him was that he would never say oh this band is just trying to be you know t-rex or this band is just trying to be bowie um he would say this is a fascinating new band from stoke and here they are with their you know with their latest three minute pop song um and that's how kind of i like to think about games in that everything is new every generation is often influenced by those games that I loved when I was a, a teenager, but I'm more than happy for them. I'm more than open to them to tell me something new. I mean, I'm just playing Life is Strange at the moment. And again, that's kind of a flawed game, but it's so fascinating. It's so interesting. It's so rich and fecund with new ideas and new ways to think about games. Uh, you know, its heroes are so compelling and so different from me. Um, and that's another important part of it. You know, I'm a I'm a guy and I'm middle-aged and I've got a family and I've got kids. I'll never understand what it's like to be in the world of Life is Strange, but here I am getting to experience it. I think that is incredibly um, yeah, wonderful amazing. thing. It's amazing. You should always, yeah. I mean, the same with music. You know, I just try and do the same with music as well. I listen to Radio 6 every day and I'm always buying new albums now because I'm determined not to do that thing where I go, oh, you know, nothing's been, ever been as good since Nirvana. Uh, I don't want to ever just say nothing's ever been as good since Super Mario 3. Um, you know, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Even if deep in your heart, you know it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll fight against that. I'll fight against that emotion for for, for the whole of my life. Um, wonderful. Well, that that seems like a, a nice place to, to finish, unless there is any any games or anything that you wanted to talk about that, that hasn't come up. I've managed to get through this whole thing without talking about the best game ever made, which is Portal 2, and I don't know how I managed to do that. Ah, okay, well, let's <laughs> let's talk about Portal 2 then. Why is Portal 2 the best game ever made? I think 
to me it it's basically Portal Two the, as well. That's interesting. Yeah, well, it's specifically Portal Two because it has a much kind of richer, longer narrative experience as well as being an amazingly good physics-based puzzler. I think what Valve have done with that game, and it goes back to everything I guess that I've been saying here, is that Portal is an amazing game that interrogates games, interrogates what games are. So it's structured as a puzzle game, but it's a puzzle game within a narrative environment, which itself understands its own artifice. So the Aperture Lab is kind of looks like a sterile real life laboratory and when you're in it you feel as though it looks as though it's a real place but what the game does then and what valve games have always been brilliant at is it starts breaking down the artifice it starts taking the white panels off the wall and letting you see the rusty interiors behind uh which is very similar to what they did with black Mesa in half-life they allow you to get behind the game they allow you to uh, interrogate the systems of the game and also the environment it's so clever and the way that everything ties in together the way that glados is both a representative of the game designer but also the antagonist you know Portal 2 is a game It's essentially about the relationship between a game designer and a gamer. Um, and I just find it fascinating. It's like doing, it's like doing five hours of therapy uh, in, where, in which you're trying to understand why you're a game player. And I think you, know, you get to the end of Portal 2 and you understand why you love games. Yeah, I, that, one of the greatest moments in modern video games is when it shows you the moon at the end and you think, surely I can't <laughs> shoot the moon. Yeah. And then you shoot the moon. It's like, oh my god, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's they just they're just such tricksters, and they exhibited such a joy and an understanding of what video games are. And just to be, you know, just to be in the presence of genius is so rare. I think playing Portal Two is like staring up at the Sistine Chapel. You you have this understanding that you are in the presence of an unrepeatable moment of genius. That is wonderful. So, did you did you play the the cooperative? Um, yeah, I've started, well, I've only just started playing that, and I'm, I'm playing it with my children. Uh, my children play it together, and I come in and help them. So, um, so for me, it was very much a single player experience. So now I'm only now, which is a great thing about Portal Two. I'm only now exper- experiencing this whole new dimension to it, oh, which it's is so good. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, the conversations you have, especially with children, to try and to try and explain this quite very complicated physics-based approach to tasks. It's incredible. Do you, like, so obviously you do play games with your kids, so this is yeah. like a generational thing where it's carrying forward. Do you, yeah. Is, is there any, is there an equivalent to, you know, writing something in basic and playing it together afterwards? Well, we, uh, yeah, we use, um, we started using Scratch for my son, which is the kind of script-based programming tool that um, MIT developed and um and actually what we're finding now like scratch the basics uh, scratch is very simple uh, script based thing in that you you drag uh, and drop instructions into a kind of a program and you can create very very simple games it, it gives you a few games to try like a maze game and a shooting game and you, but you can also start from 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 the beginning and uh, what what i'm finding now is i went to um um an educational conference in london uh, technology and education conference in London a couple of weeks ago um, 
at Excel. And there's lots of companies now making educational robots, uh, things like drone, programmable drones and programmable robots, which all use the same basic scripting language that Scratch does. So I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to teach Zach, my, my older son, the, the son who's um, on the autism scale to use Scratch, because I think it's going to be really valuable when he grows up because he's got a really good logical mind. When the, when think, the robots take over. Exactly. Yeah. When Boston Dynamics <laughs> needs someone to program. Yeah. <laughs> when they unleash the big dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they need someone to work on, I don't know, it's moral, uh, moral <laughs> items. <laughs> Then, uh, then he'll be there. But yeah, we, so we, I think that I think you know, scratch, and then maybe game maker when he's older. You know that that pathway is there. You know, the the, the place that I started with my dad in 1981, typing in basic into a ZX81 keyboard, that has now morphed and evolved into scratch and game maker, and it's still there. And and dads and mums can sit there with their daughters and sons and still have that that first experience of typing things into a screen and then seeing the results and the, and the magic that ensues wonderful well that that is definitely a perfect place to stop um okay. thanks very much keith is that okay with you okay yeah was that was that okay sorry i um, i hope there's not loads of ums and ahs there's I always bit, lots of ums and ahs that's fine oh that's right i go a bit um i go a bit hugh grant when i'm talking <laughs> <to you. laughs> was that was that okay there? that was, was brilliant you, yeah that was really good I shouldn't have really listened good. to Richard. I shouldn't have listened to Richard Lamartian before <laughs> I did it because he's. I I love that guy. He's amazing. So.